Section 1 of A Ride Across the Peloponnese. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Rob Marland in Zante. A Ride Across the Peloponnese by George Macmillan. Section 1 The Approach to Greece. Quote, Come, let us go to the land where the gods in the old time wandered, where every breath even now changeth to ether divine. Clough. With my mind full of such thoughts as Clough has suggested in the above lines, and with eaten days yet fresh in my memory, I went on board the Trinacria, which left Brindisi about 8.30pm on Easter Sunday, April 1st, 1877, bound for Corfu and Greece. Till ten we paced the deck, watching the stars come out and the coast of Italy fade from view. Then we turned in, knowing that the land on which our eyes would open in the morning would be Greek. The moon shining in through the cabin window woke me at 3.30, but though I looked out eagerly to catch a first sight of the wished-for shore, nothing was to be seen as yet but sea and sky. At five I awoke once more, and this time saw two small islands lying to our right, outposts of Hellas. No more sleep for me. Dressing hastily, I rushed on deck, and found we were passing on the left under a rugged range of mountains, snow-capped, and running down sheer into the sea. These I soon found to be the Acrisaraunian mountains, rampart of Epirus. The sun was shining brightly behind them, and the gleam made it rather hard to make out the details, but one could see that they were rugged and barren. In front lay Corfu, its peaks quite buried in masses of white cloud. The sea was a rich greenish blue, broken up by a fresh breeze into innumerable white horses. As the sun rose higher, the peaks of the mainland were lighted up, and deep shadows thrown down the hillsides. Soon a low neck of land, with higher ridges and clouds behind, began to appear faintly before us, seeming to bar further progress. This was the north-eastern extremity of Corfu. The north-west end of the island was now quite distinct, and one could see that while the main ridge was bare, the lower slopes were covered with olives. By seven the scene was quite changed. We were in the quiet water, smooth as glass and a brilliant pale green, between Corfu and the mainland. The sun was quite up, and the clouds had risen from the heights of Corfu, though still clustered round the inner peaks of Epirus. At about nine o'clock we came to anchor in front of the picturesque town of Corfu, with its row of white houses built along the shore, and the citadel crowning a double-peaked height in the midst. Crowds of boats came round us, one of which conveyed us ashore amid a great bustle. There, to our delight, we saw actual Greek names and descriptions over the shop doors, and heard, though as yet without understanding, the same tongue in the mouths of the people. The town, as we passed through to the hotel, was full of men in picturesque, albeit dirty, Albanian costume, rough sheepskin cloaks, white linen kilts or fustanellae, leggings, 
and for the most part broad-brimmed straw hats, who had come across from the mainland to attend a festival on the day before. The town bears evident traces of its frequent change of masters. A great gateway surmounted by the Lion of St. Mark, and a fortress bearing the same emblem here and there on its massive walls, tell of Venetian occupation, while English influence is visible in many ways, most noticeably, perhaps, in the curiously mixed jargon of the shopkeepers and loafers in the streets. We drove out in the afternoon through the groves of oranges and lemons and olives, in which, as in vegetation of all kinds, this favoured spot abounds, to a place from which we were shown a lovely little islet, set like a jewel in the glittering blue sea, and covered with white houses and dark cypresses. This, we were assured, was the very rock into which the ship of Alcinous was turned by angry Poseidon on its way back from Ithaca, after conveying Odysseus to his native shore. For Corfu, let it be remembered, is said by some to have been the seat of that wealthy Phaeacian empire whose praises Homer sung in the olden time. About five o'clock in the afternoon, on April 3rd, we took steamer for Zante. Between six and seven the sun began to sink behind Corfu, and colours both gorgeous and delicate were diffused over the whole scene. Above the sun the sky was a rich orange, the coast beneath a deep purple. The hills of Albania, massed behind us, showed a fainter colour through a kind of haze of light, which yet left the outlines quite distinct. The mainland on our left was rosy pink, the sky above a pale blue, the sea a dark slaty blue, melting, as time went on, into blackness. By ten o'clock the sea had become perfectly calm and looked like a great lake. The hills of Corfu grew black, the mainland and sea a dull grey, till at length, in the west, the light died away, leaving but a faint gleam to mark where the sun had gone down. All this was very lovely, and quite fulfilled one's idea of what Greece and the Greek islands should be. Nevertheless, it was difficult to suppress the feeling that, after all, we were not yet in true Greece. We were entering by the back door. If we were overcome by a sense of too exquisite beauty now, what new emotion should we have left to us to feel when we crossed the Saronic Gulf, when we stood upon the Acropolis of Athens, when our eyes beheld the Parthenon? We passed Leucadia and Actium in the night, and when I got on deck next morning about seven o'clock, Cephalonia was close on our left hand, while Zante lay in front. It was pleasant to find, as we neared Zante, that Homer's epithet, Woody, might still be applied with some truth. Compared with its huger neighbour, it might certainly be called so, the lower parts of the island being covered with olives. In an hour's time we began to see faintly in the east the mountains about Missolonghi, under whose shadow Byron died. By nine o'clock we could make out a dim outline of the Peloponnesian coast, above which towered the snowy range of Erymanthus, dividing Elis from Arcadia, while farther south rose the mountains of Messania. Soon after nine we turned into the Bay of Zante. The town is very picturesquely situated, a cluster of white houses set in a framework of rich vegetation, with a background of high bare peaks.
leaving the steamer to pursue her course up the gulf of corinth we pulled ashore where through the kindness of an american merchant a sailing boat was waiting to take us across to catacolo as also a fat good-natured youth named nicholas to act as our dragoman in the interior we were fortunate enough to fall in here with dr hirschfeld the director of the german excavations at olympia who with his party joined us in our voyage to the mainland we set off at about half past eleven the sun was now quite high and the day was glorious at first for lack of wind we had to row along the shore getting a very pretty view of zante as we left it behind the opposite coast now quite distinct had the sun full upon it a haze hung about the lower part but the bare snow peaks of erymanthus glittered against the sky looking almost too brilliant to be real this curious and beautiful effect we had also observed when looking from corfu at the albanian coast it is due i believe to radiation favoured by an extremely clear atmosphere one can hardly imagine that these are real mountains at all they look as if freshly painted on the sky for a canvas or as if hung from above veritable castles in the air as we reached the southeast point of zante a fresh breeze sprang up before which we ran merrily along and made good way towards the opposite shore nothing could be more delightful than was this gliding over a summer sea the brilliant sunshine tempered by the wind which at once fanned our faces filled our sails and called forth from the glassy surface of the water that anirithmon yelasma that countless laughter of which greek poets never tired of singing how vividly did the words of these same poets come home to us as we gazed at the mountains and coasts and islands which lay around our path hardly one but had its story to tell behind us we were leaving woody zacynthus cephalonia and beyond this again ithaca home and kingdom of odysseus far inland we could see parnassus loved dwelling-place of the muses a snowy ridge faintly pencilled against the sky south of this again rose hoar killany just opposite to us on the left stood our old friend of the morning erymanthus while away down to the south glittered a fourth snow peak lycaon sacred to pan and as some say the nursing place of zeus himself perhaps nothing in the whole of our journey made one realize so clearly as did this panorama the smallness of greece who for instance would have supposed that parnassus was visible from zacynthus and ithaca when the map shows us that it is separated from either place by a distance of at least a hundred miles footnote a similar surprise awaited us when we found that the acrocorinthus could be seen from the athenian acropolis End footnote. about half past five we rode into catacolo bay and at last set foot in real hellas it was a lovely evening the air soft pure and mellow with the radiance of the sinking sun the sea a pale blue with a shore of golden sand green hills in the foreground and the snowy range behind looking no higher than ben lomond though it is seven thousand feet the whole scene was very peaceful and homelike End of section 1